Hello and welcome to season two of Refocus, where we talk to artists and music industry professionals about building sustainable careers as creative workers with a focus on folk. I'm your host, Rosalind Dennett. Sylvia Tyson, known as Canada's folk country music matriarch, emerged as an internationally respected songwriter during the 1960s Greenwich Village folk scene. Originally from Chatham, Ontario, she moved to Toronto at 18, gaining acclaim for her polished alto voice and forming the influential folk duo Ian and Sylvia with Ian Tyson. The duo led the singer-songwriter movement from 1961 to 1975, releasing 13 albums and achieving great commercial success. Sylvia's breakthrough songwriting included the hit You Were On My Mind, covered by numerous artists. The album Great Speckled Bird has long been recognized as pioneering the genre of country rock, and after the duo's era, she embarked on a solo career, releasing albums like Woman's World and contributing to the group Quartet. Tyson's impact extends to her roles in various organizations, and she's honored in the Canadian Music and Country Music Halls of Fame, the Order of Canada, and the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. We spoke with Sylvia at a live listening party at the Folk Music Ontario Conference for her new and possibly her final album, At the End of the Day, released on November 3rd on Stony Plain Records. Here's our conversation with Sylvia Tyson. Hello, hello. Welcome. This is such an exciting day, and, and I'm so glad that you can join us for this really incredible event. Uh, we're so pleased to welcome Sylvia Tyson to Folk Music Ontario. Hi, everybody. I am sure that you are all here because you are familiar with Sylvia's biography, so I won't read it aloud to you. Her reputation precedes her, and I'm sure you're all um, incredibly familiar with her work. But I will I will read a couple uh, little tidbits about um, one of the uh, big reasons why we're here today, which is celebrating the release of her upcoming uh, album. So on her 83rd birthday, after a decade layoff from recording on her own, yes, applaud that, please. That's it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Sylvia announced the release coming up on November 3rd of her most powerful and most incisive recording to date at the end of the day on Stony Plain Records and shares that this will be her final album. Well, I'm, I'm not a, a speedy songwriter. It would take me, another, <laughs> take me another 10 years to get enough songs to do an album. That was going to be one of my first questions there is the, a decade layoff, you know. In terms take, of performing by myself, of, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, and some of these songs have kind of taken that time to mature. You've written with a whole bunch of people for this album, right? I've written with, I think, five or six, five or six different people. Excellent. Yes, I, I wrote uh, three songs with Cindy Church, who, of course, I worked with in quartet. And uh, then uh, Joan Besson and I wrote two songs. It was, that was interesting because it was during the, the COVID uh, thing, and, and, and she broke her ankle, and she was housebound and going crazy. So I sent her two sets of lyrics. And she came up with the melodies, which I was thrilled with. And um, uh, one of the songs I wrote with uh, Chris Whiteley. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one of the songs I wrote was Shirley Eichert. Yeah. And it, it, was, it was very sad, actually, because we'd written it uh, 10, 12 years ago. And I called her to let her know I was going to record it. And she was gone a week later. So I was just devastated. Yeah. 
It's a it's a beautiful song too that you co-wrote. Um, yeah, that one's a generous heart. Yes, you can hear on the album. I was wondering if we can. Well, this is a listening party, by the way. So we're gonna, as you can see, we're clearly partying already. Uh, <laughs> but we're um, we're gonna talk a bit, and then also get a chance to just kind of preview and hear hear some snippets of the song. So you said that when we were chatting before people came in, the first song that we have queued up is called "No Crowd, No Show," and. 10 years of, of not performing on your own. Some of it probably was, you know, maybe COVID pandemic related as well um, because nobody else could, could perform either. Is there some of that in, in that song? Uh, I think No Crowd, No Show is about as close as I get to a protest song. <laughs> and it really uh, deals with how much everything has changed, including, including the music business. And in fact, the last verse definitely refers to, uh, you know, someone busking on the street and, and being told to move along by the cops. Yeah. So <laughs> Interesting. Is there, are there some themes in there that, that you want to mention about? So you said, you know, there's some changes in the, in the music business. Certainly, I'm sure you've, you've seen a lot of changes, you know. Is there a way that you're approaching it now that's a little bit different with this new album? Well, the songs on the album are very diverse, really, although I think that the the ensemble of musicians kind of hold it all together and, and make it sound cohesive. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible ensemble. It's an incredible cast of, of folks that are that are performing on it. I, I'm a fiddle nerd, so Drew Jureka, who I just yeah. love, plays fiddle all over it really gorgeously. And um, I got some other fantastic musicians. Um, why don't we, why don't we listen a little bit to, okay. uh, no crowd, no show. They killed the lights on the midway tonight. All the attractions are shuttered down tight and the tattooed lady has put on her clothes no crowd no show the little lost diva is lonely today all of her entourage has melted away And as every paparazzo knows No crowd, no show Now the bookstores are empty Takes one look at me and says, Move along, people, there's nothing to see. So I pack up my 
Gorgeous. Thank you. Okay, I just wanted to like start miming with that accordion purse. If you could see <laughs> I saw it online and I couldn't resist. <laughs> amazing. So we are we are in London, Ontario, and you are you grew up nearby in Chatham. In Chatham, yes. Yeah. But you have a, a few a few connections to London. Your parents met here, right? They did, as a matter of fact. My parents met working for the T. Eaton Company as uh, piano and sheet music demonstrators. <laughs> a love story. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I do have that connection for sure. And then um, growing up in the area, do you feel like there was there was some influence on, on, on your sound in terms of like what you were listening to or like radio stations, what people were playing, maybe what your parents were playing? Well, um, my my mother loved all of the of the popular songs of the of the thirties and forties. She played piano, and uh, uh, she also um, was a, a Chopin specialist. And uh, my dad was an ear trained musician who loved who loved the uh, the organ. And he used to go around to the little country churches where they needed repairs to their pump organs, and and repair them. And I used to go with him sometimes, and I would. Uh, I would just sit quietly in the pews and build houses out of the prayer books. <laughs> I, I heard another story about with a little tie-in to London, which is that you know everyone's familiar with the the story of of Dylan going going electric and the the hoopla that that caused and and you know Sylvia, I feel like you're very well recognized for kind of being the pioneer of kind of a country rock folk rock uh, that that genre, but you know. Maybe the reception wasn't, you know, immediately. Uh, well, the first time uh, Ian and I appeared in London at Western University uh, with the larger Great Speckled Bird Band, some of the audience, when they came in, they saw a steel on stage and they walked out. <laughs> yeah, I... I have assured Sylvia that the audiences in London have matured and that we, you know, we've brought I know, our, I know. <laughs> I don't <laughs> hold it against you. <laughs> yeah. but that's such an interesting um, 
what an interesting time, right? That, yes. Like, you know, that the audiences were were kind of stuck in, in their way. Well, people get used to what you do and they don't want it to change. Yeah. But if you're a musician, you do change. You hopefully develop and, and become better and, yeah. and, and more interesting, one hopes. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's incredible that, that you've continued. You did quartet and, and you've kind of continued to yeah, expand and, and, and explore genre, kind of within the genre, right? Yeah, well, one friend of mine calls me the mother of reinvention. <laughs> <laughs> And I love your first album because a lot of like traditional, traditional music and kind of before you got into songwriting. Yes, my original interest mm -hmm. was in traditional music. Um, when I was in high school in Chatham, we had a, um, a poetry book called Grass of Parnassus that was quite a broad spectrum of poetry. And one of the things, actually two or three things in it, were old English ballads. And someone who put the book together had had the foresight to print the music with with those and I suddenly realized hey these are songs I could I could sing these and I became very interested in traditional music at that point as a matter of fact uh, when Ian and I first got together I had quite a large repertoire but it was mostly out of books from the library there's a probably like most famous that I can think of of like songwriting stories that I can think is when you wrote one of your most famous songs in a bathtub uh, yes, you were on my mind. <laughs> that that <laughs> that that song was written in a bathtub in the Earl Hotel in Greenwich Village in New York. And contrary to any thoughts you might have, in that I wasn't having a bath. It was a very old, very deep tub, and it was the only place where the cockroaches wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> so. In your your safety bathtub, um, <laughs> <laughs> at, at that point was your was your songwriting process um, was it was it I was going to say was it collaborative was there someone in the bathtub but no um, <laughs> we don't have to go there but is uh, was it um, was it like a immediate you're struck with it or was it something that you were kind of developing and working on over time? Well, I think I I generally songwriters are first time lucky that mm -hmm. they write that song. And they write it sort of word for word, note for note, right away. You keep hoping that will happen to you again. <laughs> and actually, the songwriting process becomes harder as, as you move along in your career because uh, you become more critical of your own work, of course. Mm. So you, you make it harder on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Why don't, why don't we queue up another, another song? This one's long, uh, the one that I have. I have queued up is a long chain of love. I wrote with Cindy Church. Yes. Yeah. Cindy and I had a discussion about the fact that families are usually traced through the male line, mm -hmm. and we thought it would be interesting to write something where a family was traced through the female line, and that's really what this song is about. This is long chain of love. Grandma sailed to Halifax as a bride of seventeen. Her name was Fitzgerald, and she married William Shee. Her mother's parting gift to her, as I was often told, 
was a chain of antique silver and a heart of purest gold. She said, I give to you this heart of gold, a little worn, a little old with all of the memories it can hold. On a long chain of love, we'll reach across the ocean. On a long chain of love, my grandma moved to Hamilton at the age of 21. She wore her mother's keepsake when she married Grandpa Don. And although I can't remember her, I know her face and name from the locket Mama always wore on a long silver chain. For she gave to her that heart of gold, a little one, a little old. All the memories it can hold on a long chain of love. They reached across the distance on a long chain of love. My mother moved to Winnipeg when I was barely three. She told me all these stories as she danced me on her knee. How I had great grandma's laughing eyes and grandma's gypsy hair. I know I have my mother's smile. I wear it everywhere. For she gave to me this heart of gold, a little worn, a little old, with all of the memories it can hold. On a long chain of love, we reach across the mountains now. On a long. Chain of love, the gold still shines as brightly. The links still hold us tightly. We're all joined together in a long chain of love. Thank you. It really tells a story, um, and I, something I didn't know about you until just before we sat down here is that you are also a, a published author. <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote a novel called Joiner's Dream, which is actually about a fiddle that's passed down through a family through, well, generations from late 1700s through to the present day. So and neat. It was... <laughs> It actually took me five years to write. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, what's, what's, was there a similarity when you approached writing a book to how you would write a song? 
Well, it didn't have to be three minutes long. (laughs) (laughs) And rhyme. Stretch out a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It just reminded me because they're both kind of, you know, following people's journeys, right? And life journeys. And and is this, you know, was that song, did that kind of come from from your head? Did you make up this character or was there some influence? No, that's, yeah. It's totally made up. Amazing. Uh, Somebody once asked Huey Lewis if he wrote from real life. Mm-hmm. And he said, I write from real life to the point where it doesn't rhyme and then I make the rest up. <laughs> <laughs> this album is put out on uh, the wonderful Stony Plain Records. Mm-hmm. Stony Plain, hooray! <laughs> there was a, a story that I heard about when you uh, were kind of in yeah in New York and I think getting approached... Um, uh, getting approached for, I don't know, I think it's probably maybe your second second album, possibly, and had maybe the opportunity to go with like a more commercial label. And you chose instead, you wanted to be, you wanted to go with a more independent folk label. Can you talk a little bit about, about why you made that decision? Well, um, our manager, Albert Grossman, wanted us to go with a major label. And I quite understand why he wanted us to do that. But at that point, the the the, the real folk label was Vanguard. I mean, the, Joan Baez's record got everybody's attention and, and just about anybody who was anybody in the folk field recorded for Vanguard. So we decided we wanted to do that too. We didn't realize at the time that uh, Vanguard's idea of a promotion was was uh, to put an ad in, in um, one of the book review okay. <laughs> places. Yeah, like a journal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's so, uh, I want to say so rock and roll, so folk and roll. It's like, it's, it's, it's cool. It's, it's a... Uh, yeah, it's a it's a really neat decision to make. And well, the other thing too was that uh, Vanguard had mostly recorded classical music up to that point, so they used a, a very live approach. And uh, we recorded in some very strange places. Uh, we recorded in the Brooklyn Masonic Temple, cool. you know, yeah. with drapes around us, and and uh, um, the Manhattan Towers Hotel Ballroom, <laughs> because of the ambient sound, basically, yeah. and, and they were great believers in ambient sound, and and I think those new al- those old albums hold up pretty well. I think they do. I think <laughs> they absolutely do. And then this album was recorded in Toronto at uh, Canterbury. Yes. Right? How was how was that recording there? Had you done it before? Well, I I had uh, recorded with quartet in the old Canterbury mm. studio, and but the new one is is very snazzy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the bells and whistles. A very nice room. Oh, wonderful! And great people to work with too. Excellent. Oh, that's neat. Um, beautiful people. Gorgeous, gorgeous place, and and just nice to get back into get back into studios. You know. Oh yes, yeah. and it had been a long time since I recorded on my own in studio of course mm. uh, you know I, I was actually quartet we we were together for 26 years which is some kind of record amazing. <laughs> for yeah. groups in in the industry yeah you know i i think that you know talking about making some some dis, you know these kinds of decisions and stuff it's um yeah i wanted to maybe hear a little bit about your kind of your perspective as a woman in the music industry you know coming through vastly different times, you know? Yeah. How was that sat with you? Well, when I worked with Ian, it was not, not a problem, uh, being, uh, uh, you know, having, having problems because he was a big guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I have to say I've, I've had very good luck. I've mm-hmm. been a, 
I've I've had I've worked with great people. No no regrets. Very very few instances where I felt that that somebody was uh, mm. being less than respectful. Oh good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I've uh, the musicians I've worked with, I've worked with for a very long time. Mm. And uh, Danny Greenspoon, who produced the album, was in in my band, which was my version of the Great Speckled Bird, for for about five or six years. Amazing. It's just it's it's inspiring, um, yeah. To to have been like, you know, being able to make like bold choices like that, you know, and and both musically and you know career wise. Well, I'm, I guess I've gotten to be a bit of a brat my entire <laughs> career. <laughs> I, I I don't think I've ever really had anybody tell me what to do. Yeah. You know, and and I know that that is unusual you know that uh, and and you know quite often people say what do you what do you say to a young artist just starting out and i always say just believe in your own stuff beautiful uh well maybe th- maybe this is a good segue to the next song that we wanted to play because it's kind of it's kind of maybe a bratty song a little bit it's called cynical little love song <laughs> would you like to introduce the song is there something you'd want to well um it, it it is actually the title kind of says it all. <laughs> says it all. Perfect. Yeah. All right, let's yeah. let's roll it. As it goes, so it goes. Love's a dance in the dark at best. It flies, then it dies, and the world goes on unimpressed. The heart like a mirror reflects what it sees But it only can see what it's shown The face that a lover will show to your heart Just covers what sits in his bones As it goes, so it goes Love's a dance in the dark at best It flies, then it dies And the world Goes on unimpressed. A tip for beginners, a word to the wise, a lesson you won't learn in school. In every love story, the one who cares least is the one who makes all the rules. As it goes, so it goes. Love's a dance in the dark at best. It flies, then it dies, and the world goes on unimpressed. Many times do we rise to the bait To learn we were hooked all along How often we're handed unwanted advice In a cynical little love song As it goes, so it goes Love's a dance in the dark at best It flies, then it dies 
And the world goes on unimpressed As it goes, so it goes Love's a dance in the dark at best It flies, then it dies And the world goes on unimpressed Thank you. I'm not really that cynical. <laughs> Fantastic. I was wondering if it would be, is it okay if we let, if anybody has like a, any questions, if we let, sure. let folks ask Go ahead questions? On. Now I'm, I'm springing that on you guys as well. So, you know, you can, you can take a minute to, you know, collect your, your thoughts. Okay. We have a question. Everybody. I'm just so curious as to what motivated the creation of that song and if there's a little bit of humor in there as well. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just, you know, sometimes you hear something in that, that line about um, the one who cares least is the one who makes all the rules. <laughs> yeah, that, that really caught my attention. I think it kind of grew from there. I wonder if you could tell us a little more about your experience of how the music industry has changed. And I'll say something about that. Being one of the forerunners of the folk revival, it's, you, you're kind of in a unique position to speak to it from the beginning of the folk music industry, so such as it is, until now. And I'd love to hear what you have to say. I don't think I'd like to be starting out now. <laughs> it's, I think it's, it's much harder and, and it, well, Partly because I'm I'm such a luddite, you know. <laughs> but I think you have to be so computer savvy now, and the way that you get your material out and get heard is is to work your butt off online, getting people to hear what you do, and uh, uh, that's something I certainly am not up to at this point. And the thing is that there is, especially once once COVID came through, there are fewer and fewer places to learn how to do what you're doing, you know, to, to basically build your chops. And uh, garage bands are all very well, but the way you learn is you get up on stage and you learn how people respond to what you do and, 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 and you build on that. And uh, I, I don't know, it's, I think it's just very hard right now. Rachel, on the back. Sylvia, I, I, I was struck by your song about that matrilineal line and that lineage. I was at the uh, climate emergency um, panel this morning talking about all different aspects of how um, we in this business and in this community can go forward in more sustainable, good ways. And I'm struck, I was struck in that room at the lack of eldership in the space. And I, I want to play off the last question, which was, you've seen a lot of change at the start of the folk revival until now. And so I'm thinking about, you know, the core of what this folk music thing is. I know that's a big question. But I'm curious to hear from you, somebody that I consider one of the elders of our community, in the best way of that word. Um, with lots of respect, I would love to hear just any thought you might have about how this community, not just industry, but community and industry, um, can learn from the core of what folk is all about 
to go forward in good, sustainable ways. Well, I'd like to acknowledge Paul Mills sitting in the front row here because... <laughs> Because, of course, we worked on the, on the radio show Touch the Earth for what, five, six years. And that, that was a growing thing. You know, we started out really with very tradi traditionally and gradually developed into a, a real um, outlet for singer-songwriters, which, of course, is my, uh, my love as well. It's, it's funny, you know, when, when you're really young, you, you have... You have an audience, and, and people are interested in what you're doing, and you're the newest thing and all that. And then you get into middle age, and suddenly it's like you cease to exist. But I did. I have found <laughs> that once you get up into your 70s and 80s, they think you know something. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of enjoying this period. <laughs> and it's an interesting... Um yeah, because it is it is really a whole different industry, right? Right it's now, very different now. Yeah, and there's a lot of, um, you know, this is me calling myself out on this. There's a lot of, uh, you know, we have we have youth programs and a lot of like developing programs, but but truly to, um, you know, there are elders in our community and people that are that are in that that time of their life that are that are starting making music and that are releasing their albums now. And so, yeah, I wonder if you have any words of encouragement for them. When I first started listening to recorded music, and, and in Chatham, we didn't, I didn't have a lot to listen to, but as I got out into the community and, and started hearing a lot of recordings, um, the, the, the Alan Lomax recordings of traditional artists, you know, and listening to uh, old ladies with no teeth sing these amazing songs, you know, there definitely was a, a, a feeling that you, you learned from those people who went before you and, and brilliant players people who had encyclopedic memories of songs that go back to England, you know. It's, I don't know where uh, the young artists draw their, their ideas from these days. I have a, a, a niece who's a, a singer and songwriter, and I like some of her songs, but some of them are just too much her inside her own head rather than communicating to to an audience and i i really feel that that the whole point of being a singer and a songwriter of course is to communicate and for people to uh, come up to you after and say oh i i've been there i know that person i feel like that and i think that's a very important part of of being a performer yeah and it gets to that core of of what kind of what what Rachel was talking about of like that that core of of what we when we're talking about folk music and you know it's it's, it's storytelling right it's it's absolutely yeah. and it's an acting job yeah <laughs> you know because you are not the person whose voice is in that song so you really have to photograph who that person is and yeah I mean and you know talking about having that you know encyclopedic memory it's not like you know, folks were Googling lyrics or anything, you know, something. No, <laughs> like, hardly. Yeah. Although it's very handy sometimes. It is very, <laughs> you know, yeah, some some of those things aren't so bad, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, it certainly is is a different time to be to be releasing music. And I see that 
this is a shameless plug. I see that you've you've printed CDs, you know, mm-hmm. which is I don't know, looking get a hard copy <laughs> for those who on November third. On November third, you can get one of these of your own if you have yeah. a CD player. I, I have to I have to say at this point that when when Ian and I started out, uh, if you went with a record label, they basically gave you three albums to get established. And there was, certainly was that period of time where if your first album didn't make it, they didn't want to hear from you again. And I feel very fortunate to be on Stony Plain <laughs> because that they really seem to be in that tradition of developing artists, and I'm very happy about that. Yeah, you think you'll keep her, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Don, yeah. The day that you were writing, you were on my mind, is, is the, the, the fact that something else was being written down the hall at the same time? Uh, Ian wrote Four Strong Winds first. And, and, and the, the really interesting thing is that was his first song, and You Were On My Mind was my first song. Wow. I still get plaintive calls from my accountant asking me if I could write another one of those. <laughs> When you started your solo career, how determined were you that your new songs were different from Ian and Sylvia's songs? Oh, cool questions. Actually, uh, one of the reasons why Ian and I stopped performing together was that our musical tastes had diverged quite considerably, and he was really getting into the cowboy thing, uh, which I respectfully was not. (laughs) So... It, when when we first got together, I had this repertoire of traditional songs. He was more into Big Bill Brunzi at that point. And so it really took some adjustment on both sides to uh, pull together what we did. And I think it, it helped us both in terms of, of developing our musical tastes. But we did diverge. And, and I've, I've always really been into lyrics and I felt there were a lot of things that I, I had to say that were not coming out in the Ian and Sylvia material. As as good as I feel that material is and that it holds up for me even now. But you know, you you do develop as an artist and you do s- spread out in different directions. So that's really my story. <laughs> do you think there's still room for musicians to interpret uh, the Traditional uh, music, or is it all just singer-songwriter now? I think it, it really does. Um, you know, on, on PBS, late at night, on, on, on Friday nights, there, there's a, a venue in, where is it down? It's North Carolina or something. Um, anyway, a place called The Cavern, and I'm constantly pleased to see that there's traditional musicians that are a big part of that, who perform live to an enormous audience, enthusiastic audience. And I think that their pockets exist everywhere where you can still do that. I don't know that you can do it in big city nightclubs or anything like that, but but those venues do exist, and they're very supportive. Just a question. Have you seen the film A Mighty Wind? I have, <laughs> and uh, 
uh, Catherine O'Hara called me when they were doing that because she was playing the auto harp on, and she said, can, "Can you tell me what it was like being in a in a duo? You know that kind of and being married in that kind of relationship." And I said, "Well, all I can tell you is that uh, when we had a new band member, um, I would sort of take them aside and say." You know, if Ian and I get into an argument about an arrangement, don't get involved. It's not about music. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Uh, the, but, but the problem I had with it was that it leaned much more towards the West Coast slick folk music rather than the traditional side of it. But but fine. It was a great movie. So you, you spent time in kind of like the Yorkville scene, maybe even before it was the Yorkville scene, right? In, in Toronto? When Yorkville was, was in its heyday, Ian and I were touring full-time in the States. We were very seldom in Toronto. And the problem with performing in Canada at that point is that there were maybe eight or ten universities you could play, and if you played them, you couldn't play them again for another three, four years because they've already had you there. So there wasn't a lot of work to, you know, thick on the ground at that point. And um, we we were with an agency called uh, GTA, and uh, they managed the Kingston Trio, and they had a, a map in their in their foyer with a red pin for every college university in the United States, and it was a mass of red pins, and we played most of them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. I think we probably have time for one more question. If I saw Cheryl. Yeah, Cheryl. Are you going to tour for this album? I'm in discussion with um, uh, Bob Misson, who, who um, booked a quartet early on, and, and I'm very fond of Bob. And he's checking to see if there's any interest in, in my playing some of the festivals this summer, so this coming summer. So yeah. fingers crossed, we'll see. <laughs> so take note, festival buyers in the crowd. I see you, I see you. Yeah. Um, so I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to talk quickly about... Um, at the end of the day, which is, is the title of the album, but it's also uh, the song on the album. And I'm wondering if you can um, just tell us a little bit about about the kind of inspiration or maybe about the process of writing the song. Well, as I, as I mentioned before, I, I wrote that with uh, Joan Besson, uh, her her of the broken ankle. <laughs> and it's it's a very retrospective song. And, and the fact that when you've had a long life, you... You uh, you look at everything that's happened to you, and I I basically am pretty positive. You know, I'm uh, I'm not nostalgic. Um, I think the past is a great place to visit, but I don't want to live there. <laughs> um, but that's basically what the song is. It's it's looking back, reflecting back on a, on a life, and basically taking the good stuff out of it. Let's have a listen. Of the day when the shadows grow longer and now is pushed aside and the past grows stronger when I think of the good times all the hard times fall away it's the good times 
times I remember at the end of the day. Sunlight dancing on the water as we walked along the sand. Two heartbeats joined together in the palms of our hands. All the times we laughed at nothing for the sheer joy of laughter that swelled like a choir and echoed in the rafters. When I think of the good times, all the hard times fall away. It's the good times I remember at the end of the day. Thank you. I was saying I got verklempt during that uh, <laughs> during that song. It's so gorgeous. Um, as like a final thought, maybe you could share with us one of those good times, something that you know, a fond memory, one of those good times from this beautiful career. Oh gosh, well, certainly playing Carnegie Hall and Town Hall in in New York, of course, and. I have to say that perhaps a kind of collective experience uh, with with Ian and I, with quartet and on my own, I love playing the small towns because it's not, that the audiences aren't segregated by age. I think in Toronto, it tends to be a certain age group that goes to a certain place, whereas in in these small towns, you get little kids in the front row and you get grandparents sitting further back, so the sound is too loud. Too loud. 
<laughs> but it it it's the cross section. I love singing to people like that. That's gorgeous. Well, this has just been so lovely, and I'm truly, truly honored that that you've come here um, to share your music with us and and your stories. It's been um, it's so wonderful having you here. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this episode, friends. The Refocus podcast is brought to you by Folk Music Ontario. Find out more by heading to folkmusicontario.org slash refocus. That's R-E-F-O-L-K-U-S. The podcast is produced by Kayla Nizon and Rosalind Dennett and mixed by Jordan Moore at the Pod Cabin. The opening theme is by King Cardiac and the artwork is by Jamie Carn. Please give us a download, a like, subscribe, rate, and review to let us know you're listening. Until next time, keep folking around and finding out. <laughs>